0: This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Cavalry Audio
0: I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 13, The Ghoul. The year is 1907, and a sailor's been out to sea for years. A voyage to China and back has calloused his hands, toughened his body. But the seagull's cry, drifting across the salty wind, awakens something long dormant in the man. The swabby takes a moment to drink in the sight. Civilization. Someone up above in the crow's nest makes it official. Land ho! It's Aberdeen, Washington, at long last. The sailor even musters a faint smile as he envisions the night ahead of him, after the brutal conditions and toil, because life on the sea isn't for the faint of heart. But today was payday, and he knew he was just a few hours away from being on land with money in his pocket. He could almost taste a steaming hot meal, whiskey burning in his belly, as he played a hand or two at the table, and maybe with the help of Lady Luck, he'll find a bit of lovin' tonight having no idea that he was about to encounter Billy Gould. The city of Aberdeen is near Washington's Olympic Peninsula, a sea of green. Old-growth rainforest in the early 1900s could be turned into gold in America's booming economy. The West Coast's oldest natural resource is being plundered in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. As the sailor's ship gets closer to port... He takes in the sights, four huge canneries perched on the bank of the Chehalis River. There workers process the seemingly never-ending abundance of salmon, which at the time run in a beautiful blur of silver harmony. On the other side of the river, lumber mills churn out the mountainous stacks of old-growth trees that have been cut down without care, cedar, spruce, and fir. Back then, Aberdeen was a bustling city, with folks from all over the world and locals too. Homesteaders, fishermen, loggers, and our sailor, whose ship has just come to shore in Grays Harbor. Back then, it was the largest port in the world. As the sailor disembarks, he's mesmerized shoulder to shoulder with thousands of sailors like him from all over the world and burly-looking mountain men, loggers who'd been deep in the woods for months, still wearing their specialty boots which chewed up the wooden sidewalks. But many of these working men have something in common, fresh pay burning a hole in their pockets. After back-breaking work and hardship, it was time for some fun, which was available for a price at the many saloons, gambling halls, and brothels. But our Swabby's first stop is the sailor's union on the river's edge and a union man named Billy Ghoul. Billy Ghoul was short and stocky, but he was an intimidating figure who made an impression, with a closely shaved head, barrel chest, and a wide smile when he wanted to. He was known as a sailor's sailor, which meant that he himself had done the hard and more often than not, thankless work that was a sailor's life, and he had the tattoos to prove it. The reason our sailor stops off here is easy. He's in the union, and this is where he'll get paid.
2: The sailors had to come to him to get paid. And when they did, if Billy didn't like you, or you said something bad about him, or you said something bad about the sailors' union, or you were a scab, or any number of other things that put you in bad debt with the union, then Billy would just get rid of you. He would first pay you, entice you to um, put your money in his safe, which he said was far safer
0: than the bank. Billy was always cordial to newcomers. He asked the same questions. Hey, are you new to the area? Any family around? His smile was a practiced genuineness, which never betrayed his murderous thoughts. And with a charming bravado, suggested the sailor leave his valuables in the Sailors Union safe just to make sure he had fun, but not too much fun. And the sailor, feeling he was in the company of a friend, didn't see through the monster behind the mask.
2: He was a power man. The more power he could get, the better he felt. To me, that's really what this whole thing with Ghoul was all about.
0: Billy Ghoul's pitch-perfect routine was so smooth, the sailor didn't even see it coming. Come into my office before you go, he'd say. Starting to monologue. I'll be able to protect your hard-earned wages. And if you have any other valuables, we can throw them in the safe too. Because it's rough out there on the streets of Aberdeen. Lots of undesirables looking for an easy score. At the Sailors Union, you can rely on good old Billy Ghoul. Convinced, the sailor follows Billy into his office, where he made a showy display of opening up the safe. Then he directed the sailor to crouch down low, where he can put the valuables into the safe himself billy looked at his watch wasn't anywhere close to that four o'clock whistle from the mill which ran like clockwork and was high-pitched enough to drown out the sound of a gunshot billy picked up a club which was strategically placed for just such an occasion and as the sailor began to stand from his extremely vulnerable position with his head down low by the safe with a practice swing billy ghoul bashed him in the head
2: He would knock you over the head, or choke you, or shoot you, or knife you, or something to get rid of you. Not only did he kill them, but he was also alleged to have tied weights around their bodies and pulled their body down a trapdoor that was in his building that hung over a river, and it would go down the trapdoor into the river and your body would
0: float out to sea. Our sailor, according to legend, became just another poor soul in what would become known as the floater fleet. Billy
2: was a notorious character in Aberdeen. He came to Aberdeen in about 1902, and he was there for eight years, and he absolutely wreaked havoc on the city. He was alleged to have killed as many as 200 people during that time.
0: That's author Bill Lindstrom. Bill has worked for over 55 years as a newspaper man, mostly as an editor for the Aberdeen World, and he's working on a new book about Billy Gould called Admiral of the Floater Fleet, The Mystery of Billy Ghoul," Allegedly One of America's Most Prolific Killers. He says allegedly in the title because there's a lot we don't know about Billy Gould and just how many people he killed. We do know that Billy Gould's early life began in 1873 in Germany. He came to America along with 500,000 immigrants looking for a better life in 1896 when he was 23 years of age. Billy went to Alaska to prospect for gold. And it's believed that that's where his lust for killing people began.
2: He was a partner in a gold mine up there. Now, here's how some of these stories kind of materialize here, but he was alleged to have killed his partner and some, and I believe it's pulp because I haven't been able to identify it or document it, but some even allege that he ate him.
0: And here's the thing about Billy Ghoul: What he actually did and what he allegedly did are two different things. So keep that in mind.
2: don't believe that he killed 200 people. It's possible that he killed 100, and it's quite probable that he killed at least 40. And even if he just killed 40, that would still make him one of the most prolific killers in U.S. history.
0: After Alaska, Billy moved on to San Francisco around 1898, where he got work as a sailor and got chummy with a guy named Shanghai Kelly. James Kelly earned the name Shanghai Kelly because of his predilection for kidnapping people and forcing them to work on ships. This horrendous practice became known as crimping or shanghaiing.
2: Shanghai is basically you you capture somebody and you make them do what you want. It's mostly associated with taking them off of a ship, putting them on another ship, and making them a slave.
0: Because of a shortage of sailors, crimpers got what was literally called blood money. For each man they could Shanghai, by either conning, intimidation, or violence, they received this blood money. Once a hostage on the ship, the new sailor was given a choice, work or starve. Often their first month's wages went to paying the blood money that was offered. Shanghai Kelly was so infamous, a movie has been made about his horrendous crimes, and the song Go Climb a Tree by Gaelic Storm tells the tale of Shanghai Kelly's most infamous cruelty for blood money. It's said that Shanghai Kelly threw himself a birthday party. He marketed the party as a free booze cruise, as a big thank you to all the men he'd worked with over the years. He invited a hundred men. That night, the alcohol flowed. But what these men didn't know was that the beverages served at the open bar were laced with opium to knock them out. And Shanghai Kelly turned them all over to a ship captain heading out to sea. Earning blood money on every single man he had Shanghai. It's believed that Billy Gool picked up a lot of tricks from his buddy Shanghai Kelly. Tactics he would bring with him to Aberdeen.
2: Shanghai Kelly used the exact same method, including trap doors, tying anchors around the waist, that Billy Gool eventually did.
0: We'll be back after a quick break. Billy Gould was able to manipulate his way into the Siemens Union in San Francisco, one of the most powerful unions in America at the time. So unions were fledgling in the early 1900s. At this time, the tycoons had all the power and they abused it. The working class was fed up and began to organize, but folks known as union busters or the derogatory term known as scabs, which referred to those who crossed the union's picket line, Scabs were vilified as disruptors in unionizing efforts to force the industrialists to pay higher wages, provide safer working conditions, and more rights for the working class. These American tycoons like J.P. Morgan and Andrew Carnegie raked in huge fortunes. Meantime, factory workers, coal miners, which included children who slaved for paltry wages and were worked 12 to 16 hours a day. Life was hard for the working class, but many Americans in the middle classes thrived during this time, and they were hopeful because conveniences like electricity, automobiles, and indoor plumbing, although not widely available, would be within their grasp soon. It was an amazing time of progress and opportunity when the American rags-to-riches story or the modern-day American dream was crystallized. And yet, for the working class, they were being worked to the bone. Where was their piece of American pie? Their lives were brutal. They had few rights or protections, and immigrants who came to America had even less opportunities. They had no choice but to work in the factory or fields under horrible working conditions. Billy Gould recognized an opportunity to refashion himself as a sort of labor hero to the sailors. A modern-day anti hero who would round up scabs and get cheered for killing them.
2: Got himself named agent for the Sailors Union of the West Coast in San Francisco before he came to Aberdeen. And the way he did it was that he, he would go up to the Union and say, I know these guys on this ship. They are scabs. I will take care of them for you. And that's where his road to debauchery actually began.
0: Around 1902, Billy Gould arrived in Grace Harbor, where his work at the San Francisco Sailors Union helped him land the job as head of the Seamen's Union of the Pacific in Aberdeen. Billy set up shop in the perfect place to greet the sailors that he would be helping. The place he chose was considered to be Aberdeen's Skid Row at the time. The building had been built on the banks of the Wishka River. The first floor was occupied by a bar called the Grand Saloon and the third floor was a brothel. Billy's office was sandwiched between the two and it was convenient because it gave him a prime view of all the shipping vessels coming in and out of Aberdeen, the perfect hunting ground for sailors who were new in town. Billy became prominent in the working class community because he was able to earn street cred by helping workers get well-paying union jobs, something that helped him become really popular as an advocate for the working man up against brutal employers who put them in harm's way. It wasn't uncommon for workers to be maimed in industrial accidents from the giant lumber saws where they could lose a finger, hand, or arms. And sailors drowning at the dock after being knocked off of a ship by huge cargo. As Billy's reputation and legend grew in Aberdeen, his position to make big power moves began to threaten the Aberdeen elite. He was a potentate.
2: <laughs> he was a powerful man. And they knew it. They, they knew that the, the law enforcement knew that um, he had this power. And he, and he really had it over them because Aberdeen was a shipping port. It was only a shipping port, it was a shipbuilding port as well. But it was one of the largest ports, not only on, in Aberdeen and, and in Grace Harbor, but the, and then there were two others in uh, Hoquiam, Matthews and Hitchings. And between those three, Aberdeen and the Grace-Grace Harbor area became the largest shipbuilding port in the world. Billy had a handle in all of this.
0: Billy loved wielding that power in a way that made union members feel supported as he continued to go after union busters, or scabs. City officials, police officers, and business leaders watched him go from a union rep to someone who wielded a lot of power in the region and beyond
2: he orchestrated strikes that lasted for 6 months that put 6000 seamen out of work because they put they they would send ships up up to Aberdeen with scabs on them and he would he would take those scabs and kill them in one instance, he took four of them out and put them on, a, on an island, um, Moon Island, which is outside of Hoquiam, and left them there for the tide to come in and, and drown them. Another instance, he, he um, in fact, the very, very first instance that he ran afoul of everybody um, was um, in 1906, which was about three years after he had come to Aberdeen, well, almost four years, there was a ship called the Fearless. It came into town, and it had a number of Union Busters on the ship. Uh, there were about eight of them, and he kidnapped them. He, he took about 12 of his own men and went up and he kidnapped them. He was alleged to have killed one And he basically was tried for that and fined. Well, he was so powerful that the union, Sailors Union in San Francisco, paid his fine. And he was off.
0: This ingratiated himself with fellow sailors. Crossing Billy was not good for one's health. Payback could come in a variety of forms. Billy
2: had a charming nature about him. He could be your friend, but don't ever cross him. And there were a number of people that did either crossed him or they crossed the sailors union and they paid for it. But he was charming. He could talk his way or I should say into and out of um, any number of different incidents that occurred.
0: Billy was intelligent, ruthless, and he picked the perfect victims, mostly sailors, single men from out of town with few ties to the community. And he masterfully positioned himself as a person of authority within the investigation of the people that he's alleged to have murdered.
2: Most of them really didn't have relatives in the area or anything. And the thing is that who would identify these bodies? Well, Billy Gould did. Every time there was a body, or most of the time that there was a body, the um, police chief at the time um, would knock on Billy's door and say, we got another floater out here. That's what they actually happened, because Wishka River was in a, a tide-flat river, and fluctu the water would fluctuate with the tides, so when the tide would go out, the body would float up.
0: A few years after Billy Gould's arrival in Aberdeen, there were so many bodies recovered that they became known as the Floater Fleet, and Aberdeen would become known as the Port of Missing Men. The labels weren't good for business, and at some point, law enforcement realized that the Floater Fleet was possibly the work of a serial killer. Aberdeen had already earned a bad reputation. In the early 1900s, it was known as the Hellhole of the Pacific, because of its legendary skid row that was raw, rowdy, and filled with saloons and brothels that cashed in on all the men coming into the city. Concerned about the reputation of their city and stopping a killer, city leaders backed a new candidate for chief of police. His name was George Dean, and he ran a campaign on the promise to catch the killer. George Dean won, which wasn't good for Billy Gould. Billy wasn't even on the chief of police's radar until he caught him in a lie. Billy was called to identify another body in the floater fleet. Remember, Billy's job as the head of the Sailors Union of the Pacific was to identify men found in the water who were believed to be sailors. Billy takes a look at the body and says to Chief Dean, Yeah, that's Otto Kurtz. But something didn't sit right with Chief Dean. He took a closer look at the body that they just recovered the body that Billy had just identified as Otto Kurtz. And he remembered seeing that watch on another man. And though he couldn't remember his name, he knew that it wasn't Otto Kurtz. As it would turn out, that watch had a story to tell.
2: George Dean had seen a man with this watch on in a bar a few days before that, and he knew the man wasn't Otto Kurtz. He was introduced as a different man, different name. He found out that where this, the guy that he met, where he lived, to the landlord, and said, he went to go get paid, you know, the, the sailors' union. That was three days ago, and he hasn't come back. And he found out the man's name was Altraman, Rudolph Altraman. Well, he, he also then realized that, okay, Altman is the dead guy. Billy identifies him as Otto Kurtz. So Dean gets on the phone or in some way contacts a colleague in Germany and finds out that Otto Kurtz is the maker of the watch.
0: Chief Dean didn't arrest Billy then. He knew he didn't have enough evidence, but he started to hatch a plan. He brought together the mayor of Aberdeen and a few business leaders who contributed $10,000 to put toward an investigation of Billy Gould. And just for scale, $10,000 back then, in today's money, would be worth a little over $327,000. Now, this, I guess you could call it secret task force, they used a portion of the money to buy the Grand Saloon. That was the bar on the first floor of the building where Billy had set up the sailor's union and they knew that he was a regular there and that he liked to drink. The second part of the plan was to hire two brothers, the McHughes, who posed as the new owners and bartenders. Now, the McHughes used Billy's reputation for getting drunk to their advantage. He was known to brag about his exploits and he began to get chummy with Patty McHugh
2: assigned a man named Patty McHugh to be the new owner of the Grand Saloon to kind of keep an eye on Billy. Well, Patty and Billy were buddy buddies, too, at that time. But Dean went a step further, and he hired an international detective agency called the Teal Agency, T-H-I-E-L, to start doing some investigating into, into the activity that was going on in Aberdeen. And Between McHugh and the Teal Agency and the Kurtz Watch, they they eventually came to a conclusion that Google was responsible for a a whole lot more than just, just these floaters.
0: As this undercover investigation was going on behind Billy's back, he killed his friend Andy Jacobson's dog. Jacobson
2: was a guy who was a friend of Billy's. He drank with him, he, he fished and hunted with him, and he was, he was just a regular a guide regular of Billy's, not one of his henchmen or anything like that. Well, one day, Billy got mad at Jacobson, and he killed his beloved dog and told him that he didn't kill him, and he's just wandered off somewhere.
0: Billy viciously kicked Jacobson's dog to death and then callously threw the body under his building into the Wishka River. Now, this was Andy's beloved dog, and so of course he went looking for him, and he would find him in the river by Billy's office. Jacobson had been the recipient for a long time of Billy's drunken, bragging conversations. And after the incident with the dog, he was so upset and fed up that he went to Chief Dean and he told him a couple of things. First, that Billy had set at least two fires on purpose. He torched the property of one of his enemies by actually inventing a device that would allow him to trigger an explosion remotely. Apparently, when Billy first came to Aberdeen, he'd opened up a cigar business and he wanted to take out his competition a rival cigar store operator. So he rigged an incendiary device that he could trigger without having to be in the building. As it would turn out, not only did he burn out the cigar store, but also the hotel that housed the business. He didn't seem to be too concerned about the collateral damage that two people who were staying in the hotel died in the fire. It's alleged that when Billy saw the cigar owner after the fire, he said, quote, ain't it funny how things work out? I never dreamed there'd be a bonus in it. One of the victims of the fire was an enemy of his as well. Billy was so proud of his invention that he actually got a patent for it.
2: Jacobson explains in great detail the patent that Billy has and the fact that he has bragged about the fact that he could burn the whole town down if he wanted to.
0: More Murder Chronicles after the break. The second thing that Billy's friend Jacobson had told Chief Dean was a story about a murder that Billy had bragged about to him. That a sailor had visited the sailors' union, and Billy put on his usual dog and pony show and encouraged the sailor to put his $200 in the safe. He then told the man to go stand by one of the river pilings and wait for an incoming ship. But what he was really doing was waiting for the 4 o'clock whistle to blow from the mill that came like clockwork and then he shot him in the head from his office window. Chief Dean would need one more drunken confession, which would prove to be the deed that would finally lead to Billy's arrest. It's alleged that Billy bragged to Patty McHugh, the guy posing as the owner bartender at the Grand Saloon. Billy described himself and two of his buddies, Charles Hadberg and John Hoffman, going to a Finnish immigrant farmer's home. There, they sexually assaulted the farmer's daughter and shot some of their cattle. Of course, Patty McHugh ran to the chief, who wasn't even aware of the crimes against the family because they'd been too afraid of retribution to come forward. So when the police showed up at the farm, the family's description of the suspects matched Billy Gould, Charles Hadberg, and John Hoffman. So you're going to want to remember those two names, Charles Hadberg and John Hoffman. And while it seems that Billy was clueless about the investigation going on around him, it didn't take long for word to get back to him that the police had questioned the farmer and his family. Billy went back to the Grand Saloon. Affronted by the idea that Patty McHugh would betray him, he accuses the man of going to the police. Remarkably, Patty was able to shift the blame onto Hadberg and Hoffman, saying they were the ones that went to the police, not him. And of course, you can imagine what Billy Ghoul had in store for his friends. From that moment on, he started plotting his revenge. In late December 1909, Billy waltzed up to the bar. He explained to Patty, over drinks, how he was planning to kill Hadberg and Hoffman with the help of his friend, John Klingenberg. Now it's unclear why Billy included Klingenberg into his plans to kill Hadberg and Hoffman, but he called Klingenberg over to his office. He explained how he had killed the farmer's cow and that all three of the men had sexually assaulted the farmer's daughter and that he was going to kill his accomplices because he didn't want to go to prison. And it is worth noting that even though Patty McHugh knew of the plan to murder Hadberg and Hoffman, no safeguards were put into place to warn them that this could be coming. Four days later, Billy came to the bar, all smiles, and said the deed was done. That Hadberg and Hoffman went away for good, saying, We have landed those fellows. Johnny Klingenberg and I killed Hoffman and Hadberg. "...we planted the bodies in the waters of Gray's Harbor with anchors for pillows." Patty McHugh immediately went to Chief Dean, and they started looking for the men's bodies. They searched the waterways near and far, didn't find anything at first. On February 2nd, the body of Charles Hadberg was found in the harbor at Indian Creek, and two days later, Billy Gould was arrested. After Billy was arrested, Klingenberg skipped town. He boarded the Santa Rosalia, a ship sailing for Mexico. It's unclear who Klingenberg was more afraid of, law enforcement or Billy, because Klingenberg would recount that before Billy was arrested, on several occasions, he tried to get him alone. Klingenberg knew firsthand what happened to Billy's friends, who knew too much. The police were able to track down the vessel and they got a message to the captain. Under no circumstances could Klingenberg be allowed to disembark. In fact, he needed to be locked up inside the ship and be brought back to Aberdeen, which they did.
2: As soon as he comes back, he starts singing like a canary, and he confesses to the whole thing and tells the sheriff and the police chief exactly what happened and in great detail. So now they've got got it all on him.
0: At Billy's trial, Klingenberg shared the details of the murders, how Billy had invited him to meet up on December 24th, 1909 at the Sailors' Union on the shores of the Wishka River. When he arrived, John Hoffman was already there. Billy said that he'd asked Hoffman to help him do some work on his sailboat. The plan was they would take Billy's gas-powered skiff to where his sailboat was moored. So the three men steadily motored away further and further out to open water. And when Billy was satisfied that they were at a point that was far enough away from shore and prying eyes, he pivoted from his position at the wheel of the skiff, pulled out his gun, and fired three shots into the back of John Hoffman. Hoffman wailed out in shock and pain. The three shots hadn't killed him. He was very much alive and realizing the perilousness of his situation as he began begging for his life. Billy stared at Klingenberg, who sat in a state of shock. Numb to what he had witnessed, Billy shouted at him, "'If you don't take the wheel, I'm gonna kill ya!' Then Billy shot Hoffman in the temple. And together, Billy and Klingenberg tied an anchor around his body and dropped him to the cold water. But Billy's rampage was far from over. It was time to pay Charles Hadberg a visit. Billy knew he'd find him on the nearby shores of Indian Creek, where he shared a shack with Hoffman. Near Hadberg's shack, Billy got caught up in a snare in the river. He was close enough to call out for help, and Hadberg helped them get unstuck. When they were safely back at the shack, the hour had grown late, and having no clue that Billy had just murdered his roommate, Hadberg offered to let the pair, Billy and Klingenberg, spend the night. Hadberg even let Klingenberg sleep in his bed while Billy slept in Hoffman's bed. Of course, Billy knew only too well that Hoffman would never need a bed again. Meantime, Hadberg slept on the floor. The next morning, Billy employed the same ruse on Hadberg as he had on Huffman the day before. He asked him to help him with his sailboat, and so the three men, this time Billy Ghoul, Klingenberg, and Hadberg, piled into the skiff and set off for the sailboat, or so Hadberg thought. When they were in a remote spot, this time Billy signaled for Klingenberg to shoot Hadberg. Klingenberg would testify in court that he believed that if he hadn't done what Billy had asked, that Billy would have killed them both. And so, he shot Hadberg three times. Then Billy and Klingenberg tied an anchor around his body and dropped him into the sea. During his trial, Billy swore that Hadberg and Hoffman just went away to Alaska, that there was no proof that the body that Sheriff Dean had recovered from Indian Creek that had been tied to an anchor was that of Charles Hadberg, and Hoffman's body hadn't been found. Billy Gould had no idea the lengths that Sheriff Dean would go to to prove that, in fact, it was Charles Hadberg. They removed a tattoo from Hadberg's arm, which had been preserved in a jar and was presented as crude but effective physical evidence to a jury, and a witness who had known Hadberg identified the tattoo as belonging to the man.
2: He was convicted of first-degree murder and the murder of Charles Hadberg. He was never tried for the um, murder of John Hoffman, and there was no body. He was sentenced to life imprisonment in Walla Walla. He went to Walla Walla in 1910. In 1923, he was transferred to the Eastern Washington Medical Hospital for the Insane. He had gone insane and was suffering from syphilis.
0: It is alleged that he killed over 100 people, which would make him one of the most prolific serial killers.
2: Even the lists of serial killers do not include him because he was only convicted of killing one, not multiple. And even though the the police chief said I can tie him to 40 or more, that information is circumstantial evidence at best.
0: Today, there's a school of thought that many of the so-called floater fleet that those bodies discovered in Grays Harbor had nothing to do with Billy Gould at all. But rather, these men lost their lives because of unsafe conditions on the docks and in the timber industry, that they died by accident, and that Billy Gould was unjustly blamed for these deaths by influential businessmen trying to get rid of a powerful figure in the local labor movement. Remember that team of businessmen that chipped in $10,000 to help pay to outsource detective work to that private detective firm, the Teeley Agency? It's alleged that the businessmen who contributed to the Billy Gould task force were against unions.
2: What's also interesting is after Billy was arrested in February of 1910, until after about almost a year after, his, uh, after he was sent to prison, there was one floater. And they believed that he was in there for four or five years till his body floated up.
0: Billy Gould died on March 3rd, 1927 at the age of 54 at the Eastern State Hospital in Spokane, Washington. But many believe his spirit lives on back in Aberdeen at the tavern that bears his name today, Billy's Bar and Grill because there have been stories of the notorious killer haunting the place that once housed the brothel, the Grand Saloon and the Sailors Union. Employees have reported glasses flying from shelves, and some patrons say they've experienced feeling sudden cold spots where the supposed fabric between the living and the dead is worn thin. I wanted to thank you for listening to the Murder Chronicles. And before we sign off, I wanted to leave you with a little song, it's called The Ballad of Billy Ghoul by Leon Virgil Bowers.
1: Once there was a gangster who ran this ship in town sent you up the wish call, set up to drown They say he killed a hundred, but only two a found The rest walked aboard the front and from his shadows on the ground out across the
0: The Murder Chronicles is a cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening.